Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 128. I hope each and every one of you are having a great week out there. We're having a good week over here at the Drum Shuffle World Headquarters. We have a fantastic episode for you today. I'm going to be interviewing the great Michael Waldrop right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned before the break, we're going to be joined today by Michael Waldrop. Uh, Michael is teaching at Eastern Washington University and he has taught at many different colleges and universities over the years. Um, Michael is not only a world-class drummer and drum instructor and educator, he's also a world-class percussionist. And we caught up with Michael to talk about his new release called Time Frames under his own name. Uh, that is him both drumming and playing mallet percussion uh, it's just a really cool record, and we caught up to talk about all of that good stuff covering his career. He's just played with everybody. Uh, I know you're going to get a lot out of this, so please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle podcast, Michael Waldrop. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jamie. Oh, yeah, How man. Thanks for taking time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We certainly appreciate it. How uh how are things in the beautiful Cheney slash Spokane area today? Uh, great. The sun is shining, which uh, is not all that common in the Northwest. But uh, yeah, things are, it's a beautiful day here. 
So yeah, for sure. Glad. Now, are you, uh, I, I'm assuming you've been teaching all day today. Uh, no, not today. Uh, I, my schedule is such that, uh, Tuesday through Thursday is, uh, are my busiest days and doing you. a lot of online teaching still. We're kind of, uh, going to be, uh, transferring back to in-person instruction next, uh, fall, but we're still kind of at the end of hopefully the end of the pandemic, uh, kind of a distance learning approach. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think, I think I can speak for all musicians. We're ready for the pandemic to end so we can all get back to work, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, as is our tradition here on the drum shuffle, uh, Michael, if you would just kind of, uh, you know, tell us a little bit uh, about where you came from. I know that, um, you, you know, you, you grew up, I think in Ithaca, New York, but talk to us a little bit about your upbringing, you know, whether it was a musical family or not and, and how you got into percussion to begin with. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's, uh, that's how uh, would take a long time to go over all of it, but uh, yeah, I am from Ithaca, New York. Uh, I originally was born in the Southeastern United States, uh, Alabama and Georgia, and then, uh, moved up to Ithaca when I was 11 and I had played drums before that. I became serious about it, uh, when I was in Ithaca and, uh, was fortunate enough to live near some great teachers at, uh, Ithaca college, which has a good music school. Uh, famous marimbas was teaching there, Gordon Stout, who I studied with. And they also had, uh, a number of grad students there that, uh, gave me a, a solid foundation in classical snare drum playing and keyboard playing so but i was at the time i was most interested in studying jazz so um after i finished high school in ithaca i went to the university of north texas in denton and uh um began a jazz degree there and ended up ended up finishing a percussion degree but while there i played in their jazz ensembles uh ended up playing in the one o'clock band and also playing in their um uh, kind of premier fusion pop oriented band called the zebras. Okay. And, um, yeah, UNT was a great experience. A lot of great players when I was there, Greg Bissonette was just finishing up when I started and I had the good fortune of studying with Greg and North Texas had a lot of great teachers when I was there. Um, my main teacher was Henry Oxtell, who, uh, anyone who knows North Texas, um, players knows about Henry. Uh, he was kind of the, the drum guru of, uh, uh, of that, uh, school. And, uh, so I, I had a lot of formal instruction there and then I moved back to New York, uh, freelanced around there for a while. Then I went to the university of Memphis to get my master's degree. I had a teaching fellowship there and, uh, I had a great experience working in Memphis for, three years from in the late eighties. And then, uh, I went out and freelanced, uh, a while, uh, got to tour Europe doing Broadway shows. And I played a lot of jazz gigs in Chicago, which was kind of where I was based, uh, in the early nineties. Then I'm moved 
back to Denton to get my doctorate at the University of North Texas and got my doctorate in percussion. And when I finished that, I started my teaching career. Um, so <laughs> I'm glossing over almost a couple of decades of my career, but <laughs> trying to make it short uh, as uh as long as I've been doing this, it's kind of difficult to make it short, but um, I started my academic career back at the University of Memphis in a lecturer position, teaching in the jazz studies and drum set, jazz drum set. And then I got a position at, in Colorado where I was director of jazz studies and at a small school in Western Colorado called Colorado Mesa University. And then uh, I got another position in the University of Toledo and then in 2006, after that, after two years in Toledo, I moved out here to Eastern Washington University where I teach, been teaching percussion now for 15 years and staying active as a performer. And uh, most recently in the past six years, I've released three albums on the Origin label and they've done really well in terms of radio play. Uh, they've, uh, well, at least the first two, uh, were jazz albums released and they got, they spent a long time on the jazz week charts and also um, got a lot of good critical reviews uh, reviewed in downbeat uh, jazz journal in, uh, in London. And uh, those two CDs resulted in two featured performances at the um, Gen conference, which is the jazz educators network conference. And it's pretty prestigious to get to perform there, but we got a chance to perform twice in 2016 and 2019. And most recently, which is I think why you're contacting me is uh, I, I released a percussion album on origin called Time Frames, which features a lot of great percussionists like Gordon Stout, famous marimbist. I play marimba, vibraphone and drum set on the CD. There's also a duo with, Marco Georgievich, who's an amazing drummer from uh, the New York City area, who's on the faculty at Berkeley, and uh, that was featured in the Drumhead. Uh, I think it was the November or uh, December issue of Drumhead last year. Uh, they did a uh, a feature on one of the tracks from that, and. Other percussionists, there's uh, Jose Rossi uh, is on the Time Frames album. Uh, Jose played with uh, Weather Report, recorded two albums with Weather Report, and also played with the Talking Heads. And then the other percussionist of note on those CDs is Brad Dutz, who's an L.A. studio percussionist, yeah. um, played with um, the Gordon Goodwin Big Band and uh, just a – ton of movie soundtracks uh so it's really a great the newest cd is all about percussion and all the drummers i've played it for really love it uh because it's kind of even though it's not all drums because there's some keyboard percussion the my approach to the music is coming from a, a drummer's perspective so i'm first a drummer and then uh, a keyboardist and keyboard percussionist second uh, but my, uh, the core of what I do is the drums and, yeah, for uh, sure. 
So, yeah, that's uh, a, a brief synopsis of my career. Yeah, well, I, l- let's dig in on a little bit of this because there's, um, you know, as you said, it, it's hard to be brief, but, you know, I, I do want to unpack a little bit of stuff. You know, we were talking beforehand, um, I, not that I remember, but we were both in Memphis around the same time period when you had come back for, you know, your second stint in Memphis with your lecture position. You know, I was in Memphis in 96 and 97, you know, beating myself up down on Beale Street and you were, you know, kind of at the end of Beale Street doing a lot of Broadway shows at the Orpheum. Um, so I was playing on Beale Street, though. We, we might have been playing at the same time. <laughs> it's uh, amazing. It's such a small there world. Was a, I'm trying to remember that club. It had the Charlie Wood playing organ. Um, it, it was it was a steady jazz gig on Beale Street. It was the only like steady jazz gig there, but that was four or five nights a week. God, I wish I could remember the name of that club. But um, uh, let, let me think, and I'm probably going to get this wrong on the first guess. But there was Rum Boogie Cafe that I played at. It's quite just a- up, it was just up the street, like two doors. Uh, like up the hill from the Rum Boogie Cafe. Uh, and it was between the Blue City Cafe and Rum Boogie Cafe Okay, um, on that street. Um, I just can't remember the name of that. But I played Blue City. I played all those. I played blues gigs in Memphis, especially when I was getting my master's in the 80s. But um, so uh, I wasn't just playing Broadway shows and uh, doing different things. I played with the symphony when I was there too. So I, I just... Uh, I did whatever gig uh, I could in Memphis. Uh, did some recording. I played on a movie soundtrack when I was there with the, that was a really memorable, it was Christmas vacation. Yeah. Which, I was, I was going to get to that because I mean, yeah. that's, that's a pretty big movie. I mean, that's, that's yeah, huge. I ended up playing timpani on the, the title track, uh, the opening musical track. So they needed a timpani player. So they called the university of Memphis and, my uh, colleague there sent me to do it. And I walked in the studio and uh, Barry Mann, the famous songwriter who worked with Carol King wrote up on the roof and all these great tunes. So Barry Mann was in there and, uh, and there was a singer in the hallway. Uh, it was Mavis Staples. I oh didn't my know God. it at the time. Wow. And uh, so I walked in and Mavis Staples was in there smoking a cigarette, getting ready to record the vocal tracks. And, uh, I just introduced myself. I didn't really know who she was. I didn't know it. I learned later it was Mavis Staples, but she was really cool. That's what I remember. And Barry Mann was really interesting. They were uh, drinking uh, Jack Daniels, (laughs) producing this crap. And, uh, uh, you know, I was pretty surprised because this was a major production, but I was in and out of there in about five minutes. I recorded my timpani track and they were happy with it and I went on. But uh, now did they do that? So, at- I mean, Memphis, well, there was always a lot going on there. And, and the guy who got me, the, uh, who, who had contacted the University of Memphis was Lester Snell, who was Isaac Hayes pianist. And yeah. had played with, he had played on Shaft. He, he, uh, I don't know if he did the orchestration, but I know he played keyboards on that. And Lester had been working with Prince uh, at the time. So um, I had actually played some shows in at the Orpheum Theater with Lester Snell on keyboard. We backed up uh, Della Reese and Maureen McGovern at the Orpheum. 
and that's how I first met Lester. And nice. Memphis, Memphis was just a place that had a lot of history and a lot of great musicians. And uh, it was a really different environment than North Texas, which was also a really great place to learn your craft. But Memphis had, I mean, it's a cliche to say it, but it, the musicians were more organic. They had more soul, shall you say. Yeah. Uh, they weren't necessarily technically better than the other places I had been, but uh, music seemed to mean more in Memphis just because of the culture. It's, it's, uh, it's just an inherently musical place. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you were doing the, uh, the, the Christmas Vacation soundtrack, did they do that at Kiva or was it at Arden? It was Kiva. Okay. It was exactly Kiva, yeah. I, I would not have remembered that if you hadn't said that. Well, you know, Kiva became the House of Blues recording studio a few years after that. But I I mean, I can remember doing sessions down there at both Ardent and Kiva, Um, you know, and when you walk in and you go, this is where ZZ Top recorded, you know, Trace Hombres or, you know, the Staples singers were here, Big Star, you know, any of that stuff. And you're like, wow, man, if these walls could talk, right? No, I was at the, hanging out at the North End. There was a jazz club called the North End. And uh, I remember uh, the guy, I don't know his name. I think it was Billy Gibbons. Is that his name? The guitarist from ZZ Top just walking in with, with his girlfriend and, that a lot of things like that would happen in Memphis, you know, and uh, it was um, a very memorable period in my life, you know. Yeah, so. for sure. Well, it, you had mentioned that you, you know, had made a move to Chicago as well. And, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, get anybody in trouble or anything like that. But I know that you were doing a lot of ad work, you know, jingles, you know, um, stuff like that in Chicago, which was kind of the hub for that sort of work. Um, do you remember any of the, the, the big campaigns that you played on? Because I only did, uh, I only did one jingle. While oh, okay. I was there. So, okay. But you're right. There was a lot of jingle work going on in the, the drummer who was getting a lot of that at the time was, um, there were two drummers doing, well, three drummers that were really active in Chicago when I was there. Uh, Todd Zuckerman, who's very famous now. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, Paul Wertico and Mark Walker. So I was trying to break into the jingle market uh, and I ended up doing one Pillsbury commercial, which was, uh, it got national play, but um, I was doing a lot of, jazz gigs and musical theater in Chicago and Chicago was a great environment for working. And it was really a, a much more active scene than Memphis. Sorry to say, uh, both similar cities. I was attracted to it because of its similarity to Memphis to a certain extent being a kind of middle of the country city and a strong blues aesthetic. Memphis has the blues aesthetic and Chicago is really it's sister city uh, in that regard. Um, so uh, I really enjoyed working in Chicago and just living in it because it's such a culturally rich city. And um, um, the jazz scene was really great at the time in the early 90s. There were a lot of jazz clubs and a lot of great players. I used to uh, go see Paul Wertico play a lot. And Paul Wertico is the 
was at the time playing with Pat Metheny. I ended up subbing some gigs with Paul and he was uh, very helpful and a really inspirational player for me to listen to. So to, to be able to hear that uh, players like that uh, almost on a nightly basis was uh, a great education in itself. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when I lived, you know, I, I haven't done the Chicago thing. I mean, I've played shows there, but when I lived in Memphis, you know, if I wasn't gigging, I was trying to, you know, stand on the side of the stage and watch some of those guys play because, you know, I don't believe in learning by osmosis, but I believe in learning by osmosis, if that makes any sense. Like if you can just surround yourself with those great players, you're going to pick stuff up. I've never seen a drummer play live that I didn't steal something out of their lexicon. Uh, you know, I don't know yeah. if, if that's similar for you, but you no, it's absolutely true. And, um, it's something that, uh, it, you know, that we've sorely missed over the past year because of the pandemic, you know, that, yeah. and it's different than watching on your uh, computer or on, uh, in a film, there's a certain kind of energy being right next to someone who's seeing them do it. And, um, it's actually, um, you know, just going to clubs and watching people play, like sitting behind them or sitting, uh, uh, on the side where you can see their feet and you realize, uh, some of, uh, the things that people do are, um, they're humans, you know, you see them, yeah. you know, I wouldn't say make mistakes, but sort of see the, the tricks they use and um, the things they do that make them artists that are, are beyond like technique or uh, just um, pattern oriented things that you would learn, like trying to learn how to play, trying to learn how to play drum set from a book or from watching videos is not a complete experience. You have to get the organic experience of being next to great players uh, when uh, in a live setting. So I, I, um, I, ha I was really lucky. I got to see Buddy Rich when I was 13. Uh, and um, my mother was a journalist and she uh, was the editor of the city paper in Ithaca. And she came home one day and asked me, um, who would you most like to meet in the world? And at that time, just like every, you know, 13 year old drummer, <laughs> right. I was like, Oh, buddy rich. I want to meet buddy rich. And she said, well, you're going to meet him tomorrow night. Oh, and wow. I was like completely floored. And, um, so I got to go see him play and my mother interviewed him uh, for a long, probably hour and a half interview. And I got to just sit and, uh, check out buddy. It was, uh, an unforgettable experience. The playing was the thing that made the most impression on me, not the interview. Sure. The interview sure. was, was, he was his typical hilarious, uh, candid self. But, um, so that got me used to that. I mean, it's a transformative experience to hear live music in any, any context, but to hear someone like Buddy Rich, uh, was a transformative experience for me at that age. And I've, you know, had the good fortune of, uh, through my experiences, getting to see a lot of the best players in the world. And, and I've learned a tremendous amount from every experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, and I think that's, what's so cool about, 
you know, I, I've said this a billion times on this show. Um, the, the drumming community is very different than other instruments. You know, um, I, you know, I've got guitarist buddies that are like, I would never share this lick with anybody. Right. You know, I mean, I, I would steal it from somebody, but I, I wouldn't show it to somebody. I don't know. I just think there's a camaraderie amongst drummers that doesn't exist with other players. And, you know, I think it's, it, you said it very well. It's very transformative to be able to watch your heroes play up close. And there's just so much that you soak in and learn and, and take out into your playing after that experience. And, and it's, it's amazing. It, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I, you know, that probably sounds corny, but it's true. Uh, I, I totally agree. I, and I also agree about the camaraderie, camaraderie between percussionists, um, between drummers uh, and percussionists, um, more so than other instruments. My wife's a concert pianist, and which is, she's an amazing musician. She's actually on the CD. We play a duo. She's uh, won competitions in Europe. And, uh, uh, and of course, there's collegial support amongst pianists, but it's such a competitive field that uh, I, I don't feel that uh, every other instrument family <laughs> is it, are as sort of connected and supportive as percussionists. So I feel very fortunate to do that. Yeah, you know? for sure. So, well, so I, you've been teaching for quite a long time. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but what have you noticed over the years that your students want to learn? Like, wh where is the hunger amongst drummers right now, as opposed to 15, 20 years ago? Is it still the same or ha has that evolved over time? Ooh, uh, that's a tough question. Uh, some ways it's still the same, but... Um, um, You know, I, it seems rather obvious, but there's a lack of awareness of, of earlier players. Uh, so, uh, and, and on my part too, now, uh, probably not as much awareness of newer players on my part. So I think that's probably just a, uh, uh, emblematic of, my being older, you know, I think that just something <laughs> happens when generations switch. Um, um, I'll say, I'll go back to the time I did meet Buddy Rich. One of the most interesting things he said to me. So I, I got that. My mom allowed me to ask, ask him a few questions and I asked Buddy. So it says, what would you advise a young aspiring drummer to do? And he, the first thing he said was, you need to listen to the old cats. You need to listen to Sid Catlett and Shadow Wilson. And, uh, and I didn't really know who those guys were at the time. And, um, um, uh, and then he mentioned some of the newer players like Steve Gadd, who he admired at the time. And, uh, um, but, uh, and now I know who Shadow Wilson is and, and Sid Catlin. And I know why they're great yeah. because I did, uh, I've taught history of jazz in universities. And, uh, but the first thing he told me, was the thing I tell my students now is, oh, you need to listen to, you know, 
guys from the 50 yard, Blakey, Philly Joe, on and on. There are so many great players in this, uh, um, in the tradition that, um, you can't just focus on the most recent, uh, artists that you've come across and um that's uh having said that you know the which is ironic is they have more access now young students have more access to uh old music than i ever had so uh that's what's great about today is i i think the students are more informed now uh, at least they have, they have the potential of being more informed now than than I ever was when I started s- studying in the 70s and 80s. So um, the information age has has created that access. So, but have so we're you know we're 15 you know plus years into you know into the YouTube era where everyone has access to everything. And, uh, uh, I've seen an, an, an evolution in the past 15 years to that, to now when, when that first, uh, when that information was first available to students 15 years ago, uh, they were excited about it. Now they take it for granted. So that's yeah. the change that I notice is that they're actually taking for granted all the privileges that they have. But the double-edged sword is the information age has really cut into what you and I were just talking about, going to see live music and things like that. They're less inclined or they have less opportunities to see live music and they're less inclined to do it because uh, everything, they think that everything they need is at the access of their fingertips on a computer and that's not really true. So watching a video of Buddy Rich, I can tell from firsthand experience is not the same as seeing him live. There's, there's some sort of visceral connection with listening to someone like that live. It's much more powerful than you can be detached when you're watching on on a, on a media uh, uh, version of those people's performance, a recorded uh, performance or a video recorded performance. So yeah, no, sorry, no. it's a long winded answer. I've I've been teaching a long time, so I kind of pontificate. No, no, no. That's no, that's great, and it's it, that's such good information. And and you know, I, obviously, I'm not an educator. Um, so it, it's, you know, conjecture on my part and, and it's anecdotal evidence at best, but, you know, I've noticed, you know, some of the, the younger guys that play guys and girls that play, um, they have chops for days because they've set it home on Instagram and YouTube and they can absolutely blaze the chops, Right. But if you say, okay, I want you to play, you know, just straight time at 90 BPM, it's impossible. They can't do it. And, you you know, when you go see a guy that does that in a cover band or a wedding band that just plays straight time at 90 BPM um, and and no fills, no chops, none of that stuff, that 
is educational. It's almost religious to me to see somebody do that live. And to your point, people think, why should I go watch somebody play, you know, boring, you know, cover songs or, or whatever the case may be when I can sit here and watch Benny Greb in multi-angle surround sound, <laughs> you know, from my yeah. laptop. It's like, it's right here. Why would I go pay 30 bucks, <laughs> you know, to go out to a club or something and see a live band or, or you know, go to the theater to see somebody that's on tour and I don't know what the solution to that problem is, but it, in my opinion, it is a problem. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the first solution is to get everybody vaccinated and we can get back to where we can actually have, you know, real live performance. So it, this past year has been like no other, you know. And yeah. um, But something you said reminded me of an experience I had in Memphis. So when I, uh, when I first moved to Memphis... I had just, I finished at North Texas and I had a lot of technique. I was uh, a, a real chopsy drummer. I still am to a certain extent now. But uh, I remember playing my first jazz gig in Memphis and the bass player was Errol Thomas. Oh, yeah. Who was a great jazz bass player, but he had also played bass with Al Green. And um, uh, it was a great gig. Uh, I'm trying to remember um, Sal Crocker on saxophone. Uh, I don't remember the other players' names, but I had just been there like a week and um, I played my first gig and it was great. I, I finished the first set and uh, uh, and uh, I talked to Errol and uh, I said, Errol, it was a real pleasure playing with you. And he kind of looked away at me and didn't say anything. <laughs> and I was like, wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, God, I don't think he likes the way I play. And... Uh, uh, I learned later, I ended up playing a lot of gigs with Errol and became friends with him that, uh, yeah, he just thought I was playing a lot of notes and, uh, too much stuff. Yeah. And, uh, um, so I would say kind of, that's what I learned in Memphis playing with people that, uh, uh, were doing, making major records and things like that. It's like, they didn't really care, uh, if you had a lot of chops they just didn't want to hear any sort of uh, playing, nonsensical playing. Everything had to have sort of some musical intent behind it. So that's probably the thing I learned in Memphis more than anything is not to overplay. And because uh, they were, uh, they in Memphis, they view music more as an emotional experience as opposed to an intellectual experience. Yeah. So when I went to school in school in North Texas, uh, they, uh, in fact, even the administration had said at one point that they viewed music more as a science than an art form. And so music is a science at the same time, it's an art form, but in Memphis, it was clearly viewed as an art form, not a science. So that what was admired is the emotional aspects, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, uh, ethereal, yeah, sure. Uh, aspects of what music's all about, the spiritual aspect of music, whereas it uh, in North Texas it was about reading well, uh, having good technique, understanding the craft and science of music. So I, it was nice to have uh, both, uh, the influence of both, um, 
having gone to both schools. So. Yeah, for sure. And, and I get that. You know, I, I was fortunate enough, um, you know, when I lived in Memphis, I, I, you know, I was just a young cat. You know, I, I was like 21 years old. You know, I mean, I was a baby. I mean, I really... And, you know, I had the great fortune to do a few filling gigs with, with a guy down there by the name of James Govan and uh, Jimmy Govan. And when Stax did, you know, whatever it was, the 25th anniversary, uh, I can't remember exactly. He's the guy they picked to do Otis Redding's parts, right? So, I mean, this, this was a, a singing dude, right? He was great. He always had the best players in his bands. And I just remember showing up to the gig and he said to me, he said, don't you dare hit a crash symbol unless my hand is in the air, just like this, <laughs> you know, I uh, mean, yeah. but, but he was like, you're here to do your job. Don't, don't think this is an audition. Don't think this is a chance to show off. Just come in and play the parts. Right. And, and that was very eye opening for me. And, and, you know, he, he was, um, he was very kind about it, but at the same time, don't mess up my gig, young man, kind of thing, right? Right. Yeah. No, I've been in all, all kinds of smear experiences like that. I mean, uh, you know, and these CDs that I've released, are, I'm the leader, so I'm, you know, it's a different thing. And uh, uh, but I've spent a lot of time working as a side man, and you're not going to work as a side person if you're inflexible. And you have to uh, be able to adapt to whatever the situation is. So yeah. Memphis was a great experience from that because playing the different genres that I did. So yeah, for sure. Well, and that that's a good segue. Let's talk a little bit about these um, records. You know, now I have checked out the the big band record that that was, I guess, the one prior to uh, to time frames here. Um, I, my question is, and we can talk about this as in depth as you want to, but how nerve wracking was it for you to step out as a leader of the project? How hard is that to, I, I, I'm assuming it's a little bit out of your comfort zone. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot on this podcast is how a drummer can transition from a pure sideman or sidewoman gig into taking control of your own career and doing your own thing where, where you're not reliant on someone else, right? To, to be able to express yourself. How, you know, how much trepidation did you have at first when you said, I'm going to go out and do this on my own? I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to put out a record you know, it, was that scary for you or was it just a natural evolution? Um, okay. Um, to start with, uh, which album are, are you talking about? The origin suite? Uh, yeah, I, no, I'm just talking in general right now. Okay. When, when you first decided, Hey, I'm going to, to put together my own thing and put out a record where I'm the leader, the buck stops with me. Did you have any trepidation about that or was it just a natural evolution for you? Uh, well, I had had a long career prior to that as a side person. And I'd always been uh, having studied composition at the master's level and uh, yeah, mostly at the master's level in Memphis. 
I had been writing music for a long time. So my first CD was a, a, a trio CD I released in 2002 and recently was re-released with bonus tracks in 2019. Uh, so that was my first experience doing a CD. And uh, so it was mostly my original compositions with a uh, pianist and bassist in the Denver area. And uh, that did well critically. And uh, when I re-released it, I put two tracks on it, uh, uh, which justified the re-released and with bonus material. And that spent uh, a lot of time on the Jazz Week charts and got uh, uh, really good reviews um, re recently in the past couple of years. So, but that was originally done in 2002. So, um, 2002. So that was my first experience as a leader. And that was an easier project because it's just a trio. And I had were a uh, bass player, piano player that I'd worked with in the Colorado area. And they were great players. And I knew, so I, I that was not intimidating at all because I knew them very well. And they did a great job. So I had that experience before I uh, started the big band CDs. Now the big band CDs really came about almost by accident. <laughs> um, I contacted Jack Cooper, who's the director of jazz studies at the University of Memphis, and I played in his big band for a long time. Uh, and I, he knew that I wrote uh, my own tunes, and I, I asked Jack if he would arrange, you know, three or four of my tunes so I could have some music to play if I was to go play as a guest artist in colleges. And Jack said, sure, you know, and, uh, and I asked, so how much you would charge? And he said, well, I don't, you know, whatever you can afford. And I told him, I said, I would try and write a grant here at Eastern Washington University to pay for, uh, you know, the commission for him writing the big band arrangements, which is an involved process. It takes, you know, um, a lot of work to write a big band arrangement, uh, uh, you know, um, a five to 10 minute chart. Yeah. And uh, so I wrote a grant at Eastern Washington University here. This was in 2014 or 13. I wrote the grant and I wrote it. Uh, we have these artistic grants, they uh, creative works grants. And so I always write a grant for more than I expect to get, you know, because I expect to get partial funding of a grant. Right. So I wrote, I said, I'm, I want to do a whole big band album. And I, you know, uh, I, you know, the grant was ended up being for $10,000. That's the maximum you could do. So I applied for the maximum amount and I figured I would get about $3,000, which would pay for the charts that Jack was going to write. And, uh, they liked my grant proposal and they funded the whole thing. Oh, wow. So, and so once they, that happened, I was committed, you know, otherwise I would have defaulted on my, uh, my grant with the university. And, um, so I told Jack and he was excited. Yeah. So let's do a whole album. Why not? You know? <laughs> sure. And, uh, and so I started writing um, a few new uh, tunes for it and collaborating with Jack. So it was not intimidating at all because the pre-production process was about eight months and it was mainly just writing him, writing arrangements. I would send him demos and he would write arrangements. And then once we got, the arrangements written and demos made of the arrangements. We contracted the musicians. I used musicians that I worked with in Dallas, mostly 
folks that I had either played with in the one o'clock or had played in the one o'clock band at North Texas. And uh, uh, I said, can you do a rehearsal and uh, a recording? And they agreed to do it and they were uh, agreed to do it for, it wasn't too much money. And um, uh, we were able to do a single, you know, four hour rehearsal and then do the next day, do an eight hour recording session. And, uh, that became intimidating. Yes. Sure. <laughs> because the pressure was on then when you actually, the rubber hits the road and you want to actually record these things. And, uh, but fortunately I had a bunch of great musicians on the first CD, which was called time within itself. Guys who had played with uh, Harry Connick, the lead trumpet player had played with Frank Sinatra. These were all seasoned professionals and they were able in, uh, with a very quick rehearsal to get things sounding like uh, a well uh, rehearsed big band, you know, like it, we were, um, you know, so the recordings actually sound like a, a band that's been playing together for years, Yeah, which wasn't the case, but because the musicians were so seasoned and they had come from a similar background to me, uh, North Texas is known for its big bands and, uh, uh, so we all kind of had the same background. And so I was able to release the, the first album and I, and I didn't have a label at the time. So I just recorded it. And uh, if I had not gotten a label, I might not have ever released it or might've self-released like my first CD. But uh, fortunately origin is a Pacific Northwest based label. Uh, they agreed to take uh, the project after uh a couple of months. I initially contacted them and I sent them um, some of the early unmixed recordings and they said, well, we're, it's interesting, but it's not, we're not sure we want to commit. And then once I finally got the full big band album completely mixed, they took it on. They said, this is, they believed in the project and they um, agreed to release it. So um, origins are really interesting label. It's a co-op for musicians um, and, uh, but they do all the distribution and all the, um, uh, label the CD design and also following up with getting it radio play. They have had a, a lot of success with radio play. They've had, uh, nine Grammy nominations, uh, uh, and unfortunately my CDs weren't one of those nine that got nominated <laughs> for a Grammy, but, um, they they did submit it for the consideration and uh, and so once i got this first cd done uh uh origin uh, the first thing they asked me says do you have a plan for a follow-up and i said well not right at now and they said well you know it would be great it's better to have um more than one release and so i i wrote another grant and i got that fully funded so that's how the second cd came about which is origin suite i got you and and on Origin Suite, it's about uh, two thirds of it is big band, and about another third of it is smaller groups because I kind of wanted to give myself uh, 
a way to perform outside of big bands because big bands are just really unwieldy and hard to, to book gigs for because they're expensive because you got 18 musicians to pay. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> and so there were some uh, trios and quartets on the album, maybe four tracks on there with smaller groups, all my original material. Um, not all of it, but three out of those four were original material original tunes and uh so that was kind of my plan is okay i release another quote-unquote big band album but i have some smaller group uh tracks on there so if i you know for live gigs i can take the smaller group out and say this is a representative of the cd and there's also big band tracks on the cd so sure well, and then the, that, I, go I, ahead. I, yeah. well not to interrupt but that record is is the one that i've checked out and listened to and you know sometimes when you pick up a big band record even with the smaller groups being a, a part of that recording but sometimes when you pick up a big band record you know, even if the music is great, sometimes it's a little underwhelming. Like it, it doesn't, you know, part your hair the way a big band would in a live setting, if, if that makes any sense. I was really amazed at, you know, how sweet it sounded uh, the audio wise. It was very powerful. It was just so, so well mixed. So kudos to you guys. You know, that's a hard thing to pull off as a is a big band record and make it sound great. Well, I'll talk about that because uh, I had a secret, uh, my secret uh, weapon. I don't know if it's the right word, but uh, was the guy who mixed and produced both all three of the origin CDs as a guy I went to high school with. We played uh, in our first garage band together and, uh, and in the high school jazz band. And he went on to Berkeley and ended up becoming a, really great engineer working working with uh, Whitney Houston and Billy Ocean and uh he he had, he had he ran a studio in Boston called Soundtrack Studios which specialized in movie uh movie music uh, uh soundtracks and uh, uh dialogue overdub dialogue replacement okay. but he's the, my best friend from the time I was 13 and um uh so he took on the projects and instead of it being a by the hour kind of thing, I mean, I did pay him to do his work, but not nearly anywhere close to what uh, he did by the hour because he's my friend. He spent a buku amount of time on these albums, getting the mix exactly right. Yeah. I mean, he spent months, whereas opposed if you're paying an engineer that's not a friend of yours, you want them to get it done as quickly as possible because you're paying them by the hour. Right. For him, these these CDs, all three of the CDs were uh, just personal projects that because of our friendship that he devoted a tremendous amount of time on perfecting the mixes. You know, there was a, tr a lot of back and forth and uh, between myself and him and also the composers on the CDs, Jack Cooper, um, Jimmy Tunnel, who composed some of the stuff on uh, uh, the Origin Suite. And um, yeah, basically those three uh, people. And Jimmy Tunnel was also another secret weapon of mine. He uh, did a lot of the recording on both this last album and Origin Suite. Jimmy is a guitarist who uh, uh, drummers may know him because he played guitar on with Omar Hakim on yeah. – uh, 
Omar Hakeem has some videos, um, instructional videos. They're really great with, uh, and Jimmy played guitar on those, but he also played guitar with the group Steps Ahead with Steve Smith. And he definitely uh, has been around a lot of great drummers. And uh, Jimmy uh, is a really great, he's a brilliant studio engineer too. So Jimmy worked on uh, both the origin suite and timeframes as an engineer. I got you. So, so that's probably what you're hearing when you hear that is like uh, um, the engineers were uh, as much involved, the, the engineers and the mixing engineers were as, as emotionally involved as I was, you know, because uh, I was lucky from that standpoint. So I, I'm not, I'm like an amateur engineer. So I deferred to them on all things. So you noticed uh, something th that, uh, there was a high, uh, quite a bit of expertise in the production of all of those albums that was completely outside of my area of expertise. So, well, for sure. And I mean, they, they just all sound so great, you know, and, and I think it's something hard to, to, to pull off with, you know, that many musicians in a room, it's very hard to, to capture that. It really is. Now, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but I, I haven't spent enough time talking about the new release, uh, Timeframes. Um, it, it features, you know, marimba and, and vibraphone as sort of the melodic instrument. And you mentioned already that you played some drum set on it as well as, you know, keyboard percussion. Um Talk to us a little bit, and I know there's some stuff from from your friend Jack Cooper on this record as well. Um, talk to us a little bit about the decision to do a record where you know mallet percussion features as the melodic instrument. Uh, okay, yeah, that's uh, a great question. So, um, I've been playing mallet percussion seriously since I was. 17 or 18 and studied with some great, some of the greatest players out there. Uh, Gordon Stout. I had master classes with Lee Howard Stevens. So even though um, I've taught that at the university level now for 21 years, but I never really stepped out and featured myself on any recordings of that. I've played on recordings, uh, and on the big band CDs, I played vibraphone, overdubbing vibraphone, and I play a couple of solos. But I really just wanted to do a CD documenting that work because I've um, I place almost equal focus on mallet playing as I do drum set, and that it's not completely unique, but it's not common. Most people either specialize. I mean, playing drum set at a high level is uh, all by itself, a, a life's work. Yeah. And, um, but playing, uh, um, mallet percussion at, at the same time, uh, is a life's work, but I've decided to do both and tried to do both at a high level. And, uh, I wanted to document that on record. Um, the, the repertoire on the CD is mixed. It's about half of my music and then half of other people. So there are five of my pieces, which are groovy oriented. So the pieces I write for Marimba are coming from my 
jazz and pop influence and my influence as a drummer. So I write groove oriented pieces for the marimba. And uh, I surrounded myself with a great percussionist, um, uh, Jose Rossi, from, who, pl who played with Weather Report and Talking Heads and then Brad Dutes. So they helped me achieve that, that quality. And I also used some sequenced uh, percussion and sequenced keyboards to augment my own compositions. And um, the, uh, there's some compositions by Jack Cooper. Jack Cooper uh, wrote a sonata for me uh, for marimba and vibes. And that was a great piece. It was uh, shockingly hard for me when he sent it to me. I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> he wrote a bunch really hard stuff with meter changes and uh, um, but it came out great on the CD and that was really difficult to record because it was a pandemic recording so all the parts were recorded in different areas of the country and I wasn't sure how that was going to come out and uh, but I sent all the files all the files individually sounded really good but I wasn't sure how it would coalesce and to be sound like sounding like a sonata. So again, I have to give the mixing engineer, Tim Reppert. He did a, a miraculous work with that sonata, made it sound like we're all in the same room recording. So that tracks on the CD. And then I, there's a composition by my colleague here at Eastern Washington University. It's a, a solo marimba piece, the only solo marimba piece. And this one is was actually... AI generated by my colleague, who's a composition professor, and um, he put inputs data into a computer program, and it puts out a composition, and then he molds the composition uh, into something finished. So the computer composition is not what you're hearing; it's him, his editing and manipulating the computer composition. But what's interesting about it is the data he inputted is based on the DNA of uh, Dalbergia stevensoni, which is rosewood, which is the actual material of marimba bars are made from Honduran rosewood. And uh, uh, he's actually been written up in the New York Times uh, about his compositions from DNA. And uh, the BBC has been contacting him. He's doctors are talking to him about trying to devise therapy uh, for patients based on sound and DNA. It sounds completely crazy to me, but uh, they're, they're delving into it, but that's a composition called hollow on the CD. And, uh, and then the other composition by another composer is uh, Gordon Stout's uh, Incoming. And Gordon Stout is a renowned marimbist, probably one of the three greatest marimbists of the 20th century. Um, he was inducted in the Picasso Art Society Hall of Fame in 2011, which if you know anything about that, that's a huge achievement. And, you For know, guys sure. like Matt, Max Roach, Steve Gadd, those are the kind of people who get in the PAS Hall of Fame. So, Getting to record with Gordon was a, was a major thrill, and that's a really interesting piece of his for drum set and marimba. So I play drum set, and he plays marimba, and that's one of the hardest things I've ever had to play. I mean, he's got he's got meters like eleven thirty two and eight thirty two. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen where a thirty second note gets the beat in a composition. So it's 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, and then there's also a piece by Brad Dutz, which mainly features Brad, who's uh, uh, kind of a, uh, uh, I shouldn't say unknown, but uh, a genius, a percussive genius deserving of wider recognition. I mean, he can play tabla. The, the amount of things he can do is just staggering. He plays jazz vibes well. Um, he uh, And any kind of auxiliary percussion instrument, he's, he's a master of. He played all the percussion. If you watch the TV show, The Family Guy, all the percussion is Brad. Oh, wow. For like 10 years or so, I don't know. And that, that was kind of his bread and butter, you know, gig in LA during his career. But uh, you know, now he's moved out. He just recently moved to the Northwest from LA. And uh, um, yeah, so um, those are the, the main, that's pretty much all the stuff on the CD that I think, I don't think I left anything out. No, I, well, and I mean, I you know, I'll just add, it wasn't, uh, what I was expecting, you know, when I first put it on and listened to it and, you know, I, I'm not a critic, you know, and I, I'm not some music journalist that has, you know, has to find the faults with every, re every recording. Um, I dug it and I, I will say this, it was a wonderful change of pace to what I normally get sent to me to listen to. Um, so, ah, so yeah. I, I will say it that way. If you're, you, you know, if you're out there and you're tired of like the, you know, the super drummer chop records, right. The, the, the fusion stuff and the prog stuff, and you're tired of, you know, um, the, uh, how do I say this kindly sort of the, the pop music that you don't have to use your brain to enjoy, uh, if you're tired of those things, this is a great record to put on and listen to. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I would encourage all of my listeners to go pick up a copy. So tell us, you know, we, we talked about this. I know it's available, you know, Apple, Spotify, all those places. Where is the best place for somebody to pick this up that helps you the most? Uh, well, uh uh, it's available on my website. You can buy it directly from me. It's michaelwaldrop.com uh, and also michaelwaldrop.net, either one, but uh, it's going to be transferring to .com at some point in the future. But um, you know what I've seen on the deals, the best deal is the Amazon. Uh, it's it's on Amazon. Okay. Um, so Origin has wide distribution. I mean, they... Uh, I mean, you can get it on Best Buy. I've seen it at Walmart or something. So there's, it, if you search my name in timeframes, you'll find a number of options for purchasing. But Amazon has a great deal uh, where you get the physical CD and uh, the download CD. So okay. that's for it's for fifteen forty, and then uh, Origin sells it for fourteen ninety nine, and it's just the physical CD. So that I'm selling it at the same price at Origin on my website if you buy it directly from me i get a higher percentage of it but uh you know that's that would be great for me I, i'm mostly interested uh I, of course i would like to sell as many cds as possible the main thing is to get the music out and uh, um i appreciate your comment that you felt it was different and um, it it is definitely different <laughs> um 
And uh, especially if you're not a devotee, it's somewhere between uh, jazz, world music, and classical percussion. And um, so uh, it was intended to kind of cross those genres. And uh, I, you know, for me, it's probably the most personal of the albums because it's it's a it's sort of a uh, a more personal uh, reflection of the, how I hear music, you know, and um, it's um, the world music thing is a huge part of it. Uh, I pay homage to the African roots of the instrument of the marimba and the African roots of, um, uh, of jazz and world music. I mean, uh, African music and its influence on what I do is, uh, elemental. It's, um, uh, I'm not African American or anything. I just love that music and, uh, I always have. And, uh, you know, when we mentioned, we talked about Memphis, that's one of the homes of soul music. Uh, that was one of the, things that attracted me to Memphis in itself was the uh, stacks and soul music. So uh, I pay homage to the African roots uh, and the African influence in percussion. It's uh, they've contributed so much to that style of music. And, but I tried to merge it with the classical influences that I have. Um, so I like that kind of music and jazz influences. So, uh, and, uh, but I'm, I'm, geez, I'm really meandering, but did I answer your question about where you can find the CD? Origin, uh, originarts.com is their website. So you can buy it from them, Amazon, uh, iTunes. It should be fairly easy to find. So. Yeah, I, you, you absolutely answered it. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, just the, the influence of African music that we have. And I think anybody that, that picks up sticks or mallets or even uses their hands, right, and plays a percussive instrument, um, you have to remember that world origin. It, you know, it, it was, <laughs> you know, Neil Peart, great drummer, one of my all time favorites. He didn't invent the stuff he was playing. That's all I'm going to say, you know? So, uh, so you've, you've done a really good job of fusing all that stuff together with the record. And, and again, you know, my crowd should absolutely, uh, pick up a copy, stream it, what, what, however you consume it, you need to hear this record. I will say about physical CDs. I'm, uh, we talked about this before we started the interviews. I'm, uh, I, anything I really like musically, I, I buy the physical CD. I don't really down, buy downloads much. Sometimes I'll buy one track or something if it's something I need. But um, I personally much prefer a physical CD. They, uh, the, the CD design is really great. Uh, the guy who runs Origin is a drummer, John Bishop, a really great drummer. He's been uh, uh, Hal Galper's drummer for many years uh I'm one of the top guys in Seattle, but the whole label is really uh, uh, affiliated with drummers. Uh, it's three people. Um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the other guy. He's another great drummer uh, in addition to John. So it's run by all 
really good drummers and they don't release all music by drummers. It's by a whole range of artists, like anywhere from uh, uh, the New York voices to uh, 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 classical saxophone albums. They have a huge catalog of like 50, 500 plus albums, but they happen to be drummers. The guy who run, uh, who, who run the label and, uh, they're, um, yeah, I guess that's, I kind of, um, well, we, we lost love to, my train of thought. There. No, 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 you're <laughs> Go good. Ahead. We, we love to hear that. And we love to support guys that are drummers, guys and girls that are drummers that are running a record label. So, so originarts.com was their web address. Is that right? Yeah. Now I remember what my original point was. So John is a great drummer, but he's also an award-winning graphic artist. Like the CD design is actually one of the best things about the CD. I mean, he's a real artist and uh, he kind of models his CD designs uh, uh, after ECM labels, but they have their own characteristic beyond that. And uh, so all three of the CDs have a great CD design, but this one especially I think is really unique. And uh, I, I was kind of bowled over when I saw the CD. I was, but if, you know, uh, I encourage you to buy the physical CD. I think you'd really enjoy the liner notes are extensive. Uh, Gordon Stout has some comments for that in their or photos and uh, textual description of the music. So, I kind of feel like when I buy a physical CD, I have, you know, just kind of some kind of connection to the music, sort of like what we were talking about going to see a live concert as opposed to watching a, rec a recording of the concert. Uh, yeah. There's that, that physical connection. You know, you, um, I'm sure you grew up with vinyl, at least to a certain extent. And uh, uh, that whole experience of listening to records and reading the album cover, uh, it's that's one thing we, we kind of touched on about younger students. I, I miss, I think they miss that connection. I mean, when you, when you buy an album and you read the liner notes and you realize the, the involved process that went into making that work of art. And if you just download something, uh, at least to me and being an, an, an old dude, it just doesn't <laughs> feel, it doesn't feel quite real unless I have something to hold in my hands. So that's kind of my little pitch for the physical CD. So. Uh, we're, we're in agreement on that, Michael, for sure. Um, you know, I, I just feel like I don't own it unless I have it in my hands and can touch it. And I, I've always been that way. And, you know, uh, I just hope they keep making music in physical form. But, uh, you know, I, listen, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on the drum shuffle and talking with us. We really appreciate it. We, you know, please keep me posted on everything that's going on. Let me know how the record does. Um, I'm sure you will have another one at some point. When that happens, let me know. We'll have you back here anytime your schedule will allow. But uh, thanks so much. And we're going to send some folks your way. But uh, keep me posted on everything going on in your world. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This is my second podcast, and uh, this—you're uh, really good at this. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah. I don't know about all that, but I sure do have fun talking to other, you know, just incredible musicians, and you know, being able to shed some light on something that you know it, it probably isn't going to get shoved down everybody's throat by Rolling Stone, right? I mean, <laughs> so yeah. Well, I mean, if it's not Taylor Swift, uh, yeah, uh, you probably won't or. 
but uh, there's a lot of great music out there outside of that. And I, I, I think it's definitely worth a listen. So, uh, and it might uh, open some eyes to possibilities, uh, you know, if you're more of a drum set player that hasn't delved into classical percussion, you may find things that you uh, that you like about classical percussion than maybe what you have listened to before, because it's not your typical classical percussion CD either. So your reaction saying uh, this is not what you expected, I think regardless of the genre your favorite genre. I think everyone would have that because it's kind of in between all those cracks, you know? So. Yeah. And mission accomplished. It's a great record. And, you know, we're going to send some folks your way, but Michael, thank you so much for the time. We'll have you back soon. Okay. Likewise. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode number 128 of the drum shuffle podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this without each and every one of you listening to the show, downloading the show, streaming the show each and every week. And for that, we are sincerely and eternally grateful. Hey, go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen to the Drum Shuffle podcast. It helps us more than you'll ever know. And you're not going to want to miss some of the great guests that we have coming up over the next few weeks and months here on the show. The biggest thing you can do to help us out is share a link with a friend. Tell somebody you know that, hey, you may like this podcast. Send them a link. Tell them to give an episode a listen. We would certainly appreciate that as well. We answer every single email that we get here at the Drum Shuffle podcast. The email address is thedrumshufflepodcast at gmail.com. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information about me, your host, at jamieeds.com. I hope everybody has a great week out there. Live music is returning. Go see a band. If you are fully vaccinated and you can do so safely, go see a live band before it all goes away. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.